Hello, welcome to CineLit. My name is Adam Marsh and I am the cinema programmer for two film festivals that are happening in Derby this month, November. First up, we've got Derby Film Festival, which is currently in its seventh incarnation. And also our genre film festival, Paracinema, which after being twice delayed this year due to various different COVID-19 related uh, setbacks, we are finally going ahead with our festival at the end of November this year, concurrent with Derby Film Festival. So it's been a long time coming, but we've been wanting to screen the film that we're going to be talking about today, Exit, as part of our festival since earlier this year. It's taken a long time to get here, but we're here. We're going to be showing it, and we're delighted to be showing it. But first off, let me introduce uh, my co-host, Daryl Buxton. How are you, Daryl? I'm fine, thanks, Adam. Good to go today. Very good. And let me introduce our special guest today, director Michael Fausti of Exit. Hello there. Thanks uh, Thanks for having me on the show, fellas. Uh, as I said, I've been looking forward to having this chat with Daryl, because uh, this indeed, this, this chat has been a long time coming as well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, here we go. <laughs> Uh, yes, we obviously we we first again another we spoke with with, with Tom Lee Rutter last week uh, last podcast about his film Day of the Stranger and it was another film that uh, came to our attention through Horror on Sea Film Festival in South Southend, which now Daryl is a, a, a long time attendee of. Yeah, oh, big yes, thanks indeed. to Paul Cockgrove for uh, for um, programming those movies at his festival. Yeah, there yes. seems to be a little hotbed of talent coming out of that festival. Um, uh, yeah, in the last few years, definitely. I mean, we've benefited from that. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's certainly sort of one of my festivals, and it was a real, uh, it's a real pleasure to actually have Paul sort of say, yeah, you know, if, you know, we'd like to actually sort of screen exit for its world premiere to Horror on Sea. And uh, I'm so glad we actually had that opportunity because I think it was one of the sort of few last times that people were actually able to gather and, and watch films before sort of, you know, COVID-19 hit, but uh, yeah, hats off to Horror on Sea and indeed Paris Cinema as well. One great thing about that night at Horror on Sea, Michael, was that uh, Paul sort of programmed Tom's film, Day of the Stranger, and your film, Exit, as a bit of a double bill, and it was in they were in the prime slot on the Saturday night. And it really showed what film festivals are all about in this country. Yes. And what the state of genre filmmaking is at, at the sort of low budget level, because both you and Tom had made films that would fit into a horror festival, but both of the films have got a lot more going on as well. Yes, and and I, you know, I sort of hats off to sort of festivals that are kind of sort of showing um, our films because I think often sort of festivals I think get bogged down with this very sort of generic approach in that well is it really a horror film well no it's not we're not going to show it and I think that you know big thanks to sort of programmers who if you like can can see beyond genre because um as I'm sure we'll get on to start talking about in a minute many many of my favorite films are those which in many respects either defy genre or you know are, are sort of hybrids and um as you say that was you know they can sort of broadly be termed horror films because horror I think is such a, a, a broad genre you know you can pretty much crowbar anything into that. So, so, so tell us a little bit about the the genesis of um, of Exit, Michael, because it was a, it we we screened your short film Dead Celebrities at Paris Cinema two years ago, year and a half ago, something like that. So, so we were already aware of your, of your work, so we was very excited to see the feature come out as well. Uh, but what what led you to do this? Because Dead Celebrities is quite a different style to what Exit ended up being. Yes, um, I mean, kind of, 
I've been making shorts, I guess, you know, off and on for almost sort of 20 years from sort of Super 8 efforts um, in a kind of sort of vaguely Derek Jarman-esque vein to, to Dead Celebrities. And um, Dead Celebrities have been very successful for us. And I think like any sort of filmmaker who's been making short films, at some point you have that inevitable kind of, well, shall we make a feature? And sort of... Um, Matt Bayliss, who'd helped us with Dead Celebrities and I, sort of set ourselves a, a couple of provisos of, of the kind of film that we wanted to make. And, and largely these were, these were budgetary, you know. So we wanted essentially a, a single location movie. We wanted a small ensemble cast. And we wanted it to kind of have a, a, a sort of British feel to it. You know, we're, we're British filmmakers. We live in London. We're not going to attempt to replicate, you know, the deep south of America in, in Barnet. So really, it was a case of, you know, what have we got and what can we achieve with, without much money? And sort of Matt went away and I went away. And Matt's idea out of the two which we came up with was the most workable. And as we kind of got into the um, writing of Exit, the European referendum was, was happening. And, you know, it does have some bearing on Exit. But I don't really want to overstate that because I think, you know, there is, there is more to the movie than just simply it's a Brexit movie. Um, and once we then got into the kind of pre-production for the film, all the kind of influences that, you know, got me interested in films in the first place and got me interested in filmmaking, then start to kind of make their, their impression on, the, on the, the finished product, which you now see. Yeah, I mean, so it's in some ways, in some ways, obviously, it follows that low budget pattern of making a film that you just detailed, like, okay, one location, small number of cast, we'll, we'll do it like this. Um, but in another way, it's an incredibly brave decision to do this kind of film. There's not many low budget movies do these kind of like sex and violence films nowadays because it's so difficult to get it right because you're relying heavily very very heavily on how good your actors are and how, uh, how, yeah. how you can coax good performances out of them which at a low budget level is not always the easiest thing in the world to do. No. but you've managed it so incredibly brave decision to do that did was that always the decision that start screw it we're going to go for it to be honest with you we we knew we needed some some you know strong talent for this movie and we did take a long time casting it and um, yeah, you know, that's, that's a fair assessment that often when you're at this end of the kind of, you know, financial spectrum of filmmaking, you know, often you're kind of relying on, you know, your talent showing up and working for nothing, or, you know, you're not paying the kind of sort of um, salaries that are going to encourage high level talent. But we did, we were so fortunate with the actors that we managed to get, but we did take our time with casting. You know, it took us a couple of months to get our kind of cast in place. And really, we knew that it was only going to work if we had the right cast. If we had any kind of weak links at all in terms of performances, this was just going to feel bad, but not good bad, not kind of like Andy Milligan bad. This was just going to feel really bad. So it was kind of a case of we had to get the casting right. And as with many sort of um, low-budget films, many scenes are dialogue-driven. So you're kind of relying on sort of strong performances and, you know, I, I'm just so happy with the performances that we got from our actors because every single one of them, you know, really delivered and 
they spent much of their own kind of sort of free time working on their characters. But um, yeah, no, I'm just really happy with what we, we achieved in terms of sort of like the cast and, and what they actually sort of brought to the project. We know from this type of filmmaking and the, the films that we've seen at festivals and so on, uh, a lot of people, um, and some of them do this quite successfully, it has to be said, but a lot of filmmakers at your level just cast their mates or, or employ their mates as crew. Um, you seem to have been a bit more ambitious about this and uh, and actually gone through this proper casting process. Yes. I mean, to, to be honest with you, Daryl, I've been there and done that. One of my sort of first short films, I got one of my mates to actually kind of like, you know, pitch up and he showed up one Saturday to actually do some acting. And um, he's a great friend and I sort of, you know, was demanding quite a lot of him. But what, you know, that old adage, you know, there's two things that let down low-budget filmmaking. And it, invariably, it's the quality of the sound and the quality of the acting. And both of those happened during one of my sort of early short films. And it, and it was a case of, you know, those are two things we really need to address and get right before we can move forward. Um, so it's, it's always something that's there with me that, you know, whatever else you've got to get your talent right for this. And, you know, the old adage, your mates can't act, is, uh, is a true one to sort of, I think, always bear in mind. You, you obviously, you're making this movie around the, around the EU referendum and things like that. You're also making it around the uh, time of the whole Me Too yeah. explosion. And uh, this is a quite, a, a, a quite an erotic, sexy film with lots of violence towards men and women. Yeah. Did it cross your mind that maybe, maybe I shouldn't tackle this subject during at uh, this particular moment in uh, in film history? Um, not really, because I think sort of one of the one of the sort of key influences upon me as a, a filmmaker was um, uh, Maya Deren and um, and her film Meshes of the Afternoon. And another kind of I think sort of point of collision is is also a film called Carnival of Souls, which I'm a sort of massive fan of. Now, both these movies in their own way deal with sort of, you know, strong female protagonists finding their own way through these these kind of dreamscapes. And I think so long as you are, um, you know, not exploiting one, you know, gender at the expense of another, then, you know, I think that really as independent filmmakers, we can go down these dark paths because mainstream cinema doesn't want to. But, you know, this this is, you know, an aspect of life and one in which the... During the whole kind of consideration of the Me Too movement, I think we actually sort of thought, well, you know, our film is really about a kind of protagonist who who finds her own energy and actually manages to, um, I'm presuming everybody is going to watch the film before I start giving massive spoilers, but it's, it's about a protagonist who finds her way out of this kind of space in which, you know, various people are trying to exploit her or control her. Uh, both males and females try and control our sort of central character. But really, I think that, you know, what has happened with things like the Me Too movement has actually given people a voice and the kind of courage to speak up. And I think that, you know, our, our heroine or protagonist does go through a kind of a journey, but she does come out the other side. Or does she? <laughs> now, given all of that, Michael, let's talk about the practicalities of this. Um, how how confident were you in writing and then directing and filming some of the more controversial elements that Adam must have talked about? Especially since, you know, the actors weren't sort of mates of yours. They were people that you'd, you'd sort of hired to come on board. 
Yeah, I mean, it's this is our first feature, so we, it was going to be daunting anyway. But as I say, actually dealing with something with this kind of sort of level of, um, you know, kind of adult content. I think the key thing is that we just had to ensure that all of our actors were, you know, comfortable, safe, and, you know, they felt okay. So when we were filming many of the scenes, we insisted on a close set. And we had a minimal cast there. Invariably, there was just kind of a couple of us sort of filming some of these scenes. And I'd never sort of pressure anybody to kind of do anything that they weren't comfortable doing. But at the casting stage, we actually said to people, you know, there are some some adult elements to this. You know, are you okay with that? And anybody who sort of said, well, to be honest with you, no, we, we wouldn't have kind of pursued. But to be honest with you, nobody did actually turn around and say that. And I think I think the realities are for sort of many working actors, particularly if you're working in theatre, that this is you know this is kind of sort of part of the um, part of the craft really. That you know you are going to run the whole gamut in terms of sort of storylines and and what is expected of actors. But I think if you know if you look at any kind of films in which you know people are going down some dark paths, there there is always going to be this element. But from the kind of practicalities of, of filming and working with actors, I. We actually had a pretty good time. It does have to be said. We we had this small cast in this flat in um, in London, and we just all actually got on, and it was incredible because it could have been an absolute nightmare. Um, but we all actually just got on. We were comfortable with each other. We breakfasted together. We lunched together, and it was just you know we'd be chatting just as I'm sort of chatting with you guys now, and then it'd be kind of like right, okay, let's uh, let's go and film um, the scene that we've got to go and film. It was just very sort of matter of fact and and like that because you know these guys you know they are professionals, um, with the exception of our lead actually, all of our actors had actually you know they'd been acting for quite a while and they have some sort of credits to their name. Um, but with the exception of Leonardo Sahani, who I you know, think gives her an absolutely outstanding performance in the film, uh, most of these guys did come from a kind of theatre and, and film background. Yeah, Leonardo's sort of your, your big discovery in this film, I think. Now, you incredibly, you shot the whole thing sort of com- all all confined in this in this flat yeah. in a week. What yeah. was, what was that whole process? Crazy. Yes. Um, I mean, to be, to be honest with you, we could only afford seven days for the flat. So it was going to be a case of, well, you've got to shoot it in seven days. Um, my abiding memory is just of the heat. It was, we shot it at the end of May, and it was one of those kind of sort of freakish late Mays in the UK in that it was, it was boiling. I mean, it was just like, it was just so hot in there. And everyone's just drinking loads of water. And every time we kind of sort of finished filming we'd open the windows to kind of let the air in and then we'd have to kind of immediately close them because for sort of like sound recording once we were filming. Um, it was claustrophobic and I think some of that does, does actually translate to the screen. But to be honest with you, we did all get on because we would always kind of make time at the end of the day to actually just sit back and you know have a drink and just kind of chat about how things were. Um, and... I mean, you get a sort of sense of just how sort of close things are when you look at the film. But believe me, it was actually a lot closer than that because in many scenes, basically the crew, when we had a very small crew, are all in one corner of the room with a kind of talent in the other. So there wasn't a lot of sort of space between us, you know, physically. But then having said that, 
quite a nice um, quite a nice atmosphere developed between cast and crew because of that. There weren't these kind of divisions between, you know, the talent all sitting in their trailers and only appearing when it was their scene. I mean, not that we ever actually uh, could afford trailers on a Fausty film budget. <laughs> but there was... Um, it, it was just nice. Do you know what I mean? We, it didn't really feel like um, a hardship. And I think that it could so easily have done because at times there were like 15, 16 of us in, in a London flat and London flats are never big, you know, but uh, it was, it was pretty intense and we had some long days and there were times where you could really, you know, you really were struggling physically, but you know, we did make it and in no small part down to the, the cast and crew that we had. Yeah. I mean, one of the, one of the benefits of like, I mean, I, I see so many short films, as you can imagine, uh, we get so many sent through over the, over the past 15 years I've been doing film festivals. So I, I've seen all those short films shot in that person's flat yeah. where it, it feels really claustrophobic because it is. And they, <laughs> I've seen them all. This, it, it's got that, but it doesn't feel like it's a necessity. It feels like it's part of the setup of the film. So he works that into the actual fabric of the movie. Um, can you talk a little bit about the colour design on this film? Because I thought it's fantastic. It really oh, reminded me, when I started watching it, it reminded me, not so much in content or anything like that, but of Peter Bogdanovich's Targets film. Yes. He had a very specific blue and red colour scene to depict the emotions of the characters. Was there a similar design thought in Exit? Yes. I mean, to be honest with you, because we were, you know, shooting in a flat, we, we were facing that inevitable thing of, you know, you don't want the audience for 80 minutes to be staring at magnolia walls and kind of, you know, empty hallways. So it was always a case of, well, how are we going to make this visually interesting for the audience? And how are we also going to convey sort of certain aspects that we want to get across? And, and one of the things we wanted to get across was how the house itself you know, is you know, it's a horrible cliche how a house itself is a character, and we wanted to give a sense that this in itself was having an influence on these people, and we we thought about how we could do that, and and color seemed the obvious way, and I also kind of um, I wanted the idea of how Leonardo's character Michelle becomes a, a sort of stronger female, and so therefore the magenta color gets amped up more as we kind of sort of you know as things get more and more out of hand. And the kind of the, I mean, I'm a big fan of colored gels. You know, I, I love them. I could sort of shoot with colored gels all day because I think immediately stuff just looks more interesting when you sort of shine a, a green gel on it or a red gel on it. And it does just, yeah, for me, it's, it's your classic B movie aesthetic. Um, and so, I mean, at points when you watch the film, you'll sort of see there's, there's one point actually where the color almost completely bleeds out. And it's kind of almost like once characters' emotions subside, the, char- the, the colour starts sort of going out of, of the various scenes. And I think that, you know, we, we were always conscious of, you know, what we were working with and that this was going to look spectacularly dull for 80 minutes if we didn't actually try and do something with, you know, your colour palette because it is one of your, your storytelling tools as a, as a filmmaker. And, and I think one often gets overlooked that, you know... I mean, it may, I suppose, it does also nod towards people like Dario Argento, who I'm a, a fan of, and just that idea of the, the loss of control as the colours get more and more vibrant. And, and also, you know, it does give a, a kind of dreamlike feel to the film, which I always wanted. You know, I never wanted it to feel real in a sense of it 
it so easily could have just become a kind of kitchen sink drama if if we'd have just you know stuck with you know just very sort of pared down lighting and i i also kind of wanted a neo-noir aspect to this as well um and it kind of you know made me think of when i was sort of planning out our lighting plans or films like bound and stuff like that in the way that they use color um but yeah there is there was a design there and it's one of the aspects I'm really happy with, just just how much it pops when you watch it on screen, those colours. Now, to, to continue on this line, Michael, and talk about the sort of feel and tone and the aesthetic of the film, what made you opt for Academy Ratio as, as your, your screen ratio? Um, I'll be honest here, I love 4 by 3 ratio. Um, you know, it's one of those ratios that isn't, I think, sort of used enough just because the default is 16 by 9. You know, it's what you're looking at now. It's your phone. It's your TV. Doesn't mean you always have to use that. And um, I look at kind of directors like Andrea Arnold, who made um, uh, Fish Tank. And when you've got kind of people in small, confined environments, um, the kind of 4 by 3 ratio brings that out. But it's also um, it's the best way to actually kind of frame the human face as far as I'm concerned. And when we were kind of blocking out scenes in particular, you know, where we're sort of positioning actors leaning against walls and things like that, the idea of that very kind of closed in cropped ratio, I think we sort of thought, yeah, this is, this is really going to work. And it was something that I always wanted to do. I mean, it's the shape of my TV when I was growing up. So I'm kind of almost sort of pre-programmed to see things in four, three. Um, I dislike the loose framing that sort of 16, nine gives. And I think it's great for landscapes, but I don't think it's particularly great at framing human faces. Um, and as I say, and there is an old school quality to it that, that I do like, but yeah, it, it was intentional. And Growing up as, you know, somebody watching movies on VHS, even watching movies on VHS in the 80s, they were all cropped to 4.3. So for me, these are my earliest kind of film experiences, watching it in that old Academy ratio. It certainly adds to the claustrophobic feel to it. It makes yeah. everything feel hemmed in, particularly when you get to those wider shots. Yes. And they don't feel like they're wide enough. It's like they need to be wider, move out. <laughs> but but they don't, obviously that amps it up. The other thing as well is virtually everything in that flat is square. Um, and when we kind of had Tony Denham sort of come on board and we were starting to film Tony, literally when we're looking at this for a four by three ratio, his shoulders are just filling this four by three ratio because he's, uh, he's a big fella. And I just sort of thought, yeah, this is, this is really going to add to the claustrophobia of this. Yeah, I mean, the, the, we've not talked about the score yet, but the score is magnificent. Oh, and it's like, you. I mean, a lot of the time you get those films where the score is telling you how to feel all the time and this one it just ticks along in the background for many of the scenes constantly there not telling you how to feel but making you feel on edge all the way through it's got a really good sense of foreboding i actually found it physical um it, it was like it was like watching a film sense around in in the 70s for people who remember that you know as as you're hearing that those drones and low bass notes and things I, I i'm actually feeling that as i'm as i'm sitting watching the film uh, and now it's uh, it's nick burns who who was the, the the sort of main guy behind all that mike yes it is i mean I, I can't take credit for the score but all what you're describing yeah was something that we we spent a long time kind of considering um, Nick is a musician and producer by trade. 
And so therefore, all those deep notes that you're talking about, I wanted people to actually feel it in their stomachs. You know, I really, I didn't want to, um, as you sort of saying, Adam, I really dislike movies in which they're kind of telling you how you should be feeling about a character or this is a good character or this is a bad character. So now we've got some slightly sinister music coming in or this is the sad bit, let's get out the violins. I've always really loathed that with sort of film scores. And I think that we, we never really wanted to pass any sort of moral judgment on people either. But just through the score, we were able to kind of um, add these kind of um, aspects about people's characters. So particularly with a French couple, you know, they, they remain pretty enigmatic throughout. And that's the way I wanted it. But there are some nods within the soundscape that Nick um, designed, which gives you a, a sort of insight into their past. And I think that, again, it is, it is one of our strengths. And I think it's something that's often overlooked in indie film that, you know, really it is worth spending time and money and getting yourself a decent musician to sit down with. And, and we had a discussion, Nick and I, several discussions before we started even filming. And I was sort of saying, look, you know, it would be nice if we could use drones and something a bit more um, kind of industrial than, you know, anything kind of sort of too obvious and intrusive. And it just seemed to really add to the sort of feeling of the movie, just these low-tone drones. And each character does have some kind of signature um, drones that go with them. Um, the man on the phone has a kind of ticking drone that always kind of accompanies him, this idea of somebody kind of manipulating others. Um, but as I say, I just, I just really like all the low-end stuff that's in there because it, it's not kind of too um, over-the-top or too kind of sort of melodic. And, and that's really what I wanted, just this brooding atmosphere. Yeah, it, cer it certainly keeps you on edge, um, dragging you through the movie in some ways, you know. Daryl described this movie to me when, well, after he'd seen it, he says, other films claim to be Lynchian. This <laughs> is Lynchian. To which I literally, I literally just thought, oh, yeah, all right, Daryl, all right, fair enough. <laughs> I've heard that before. No, no, I, I really thought that because it's a big thing with me. I'm a huge David Lynch fan, as I'm sure we all are. And um, it really, really annoys me when lazy critics use David Lynch as a sort of benchmark for, for weird and offbeat yeah. and something a bit different. And they do it time and again in film reviews. And I'm always screaming at them every time I pick a, a, a magazine up or look on a website and see David Lynch being referred to, I'm sort of screaming, no, no, this film you're talking about is nothing like David Lynch. And I I, I was watching yours at uh, the, the film festival in Southend and thought Michael has absolutely nailed the field. I mean, casting of... Um, of yourself, for one thing, and Tony Denham in these weird parts where you seem to be these sort of puppet master characters. And you, the way you keep cutting back to yourself, and particularly to Tony, and the way he's sort of laughing into the camera and so on, <laughs> is, is your David Lynch. Now, I know that you've talked about a lot of other influences on, on your work and on this particular film. Um, and we'll 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 sort of go on to address some of those. But uh, am am I right in citing Lynch as a, a sort of key figure? I mean, first off, you know, thanks very much because that that is a huge compliment. And I think that you know anybody who you know watched any kind of film or has any understanding of sort of left field sort of cinema, 
to have their film described as, as such is, you know, a huge compliment. So thank you. And, and yeah, he was an influence kind of um, sort of growing up because, you know, I'd never really seen films like that. I'd certainly never seen a film like Twin Peaks. And around about the time you're starting to look for sort of more esoteric and more interesting fare to watch, I sort of came across, um, I think A Razorhead was the first one I came across. And then, um, you know, Blue Velvet. And then over the years, you know, I always like to watch David Lynch films in the cinema. You know, there's something that feels very, um, I would say cinematic, but I think it's the best way to actually experience a Lynch film. Um, yes, he is an influence, but I would never kind of have the audacity to sort of say, right, I'm going to set out to make a David Lynch film because I think there's really only one person who can set out to make a David Lynch film. And, um, and I think if you try to consciously to, to you know, create in the style of another filmmaker, then you are just falling into this horrendous, you know, postmodern trap of, oh, it's a pastiche, oh, it's a homage. And um, so he is an influence, and I think it's, you know, he's a big shadow to kind of move out from, particularly. I'm massively influenced by surrealist cinema, and, um, and I think that sort of David Lynch is, is part of surrealist cinema, albeit sort of late 20th century surrealist cinema. Um, yeah, he is an influence. You mentioned Maya Darren earlier on, and a filmmaker like Lynch will have had that same sort of influence. So, so you're, you're just sort of carrying the torch, really. Yes, I mean, to be honest with you, you know, again, yeah, a huge compliment and any kind of comparison with David Lynch I'll take and thanks very much. You know, that's that's a poor quote for the poster. So cheers for that one, Daryl. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, when I started seeing sort of surrealist films, I guess I was about sort of 17, 18. And for me, that that was a liminal moment, sort of seeing films like Meshes of the Afternoon um, and Shian Andalou. And actually sort of thinking, you know, I'd, up until this point, I'd enjoyed watching films, but it was really once I sort of started seeing surrealist films, that I thought, actually, I want to make films. You know, I don't just want to watch them. I actually kind of want to go off and, and make some stuff like this. And I think that anything, even when I kind of try and make something relatively sort of straightforward, like, you know, in many respects, um, Dead Celebrities is, is a bit more straightforward, I guess. Yeah, you know, I, I just can't tell a story in a linear way. It, it's it's just, I guess, part of my thought process that it all starts to get a bit weird after a point, and um, I can't tell a story in a in a straightforward way. But I mean, a big influence um, on Exit for me was was Louis Brunel's uh, Belle de Jour, which you know, I think it's an, in, an incredible film. Even you know, the, I, I don't fully get all of it, and I think that that really for me is is a, a sort of you know an aspect of, of exit, which I sort of, I don't ever really want to explain all of it because I think that the minute you do start saying to people, well, this equals this and that equals that, then really it's, it's losing its charm. And to sort of go back to your original point about David Lynch, is saying Lynch has always said that the minute you start explaining things away, it all, you know, it's a bit like a magic trick. Once you know how it's done, then it's, it's, it's no longer interesting. Well, happy then for, for individual viewers to sort of take away their own interpretation. Absolutely. And I think that for me, these are always, these are the, the films that I'm interested in, you know, the films in which you kind of come away from and you think, well, what was that really about? And then you watch it again and you have a different opinion about what it was about from the first time you watch it. I mean, another sort of big influence on me as a, as a filmmaker was, was watching performance um, 
you know, the film by uh, Nick Rogue and Donald Camel. And that was a point I just sort of thought, you know, well, I want to go and make that film. I still don't really know entirely what it's about, but that's not the point. It's the same with a piece of music. You don't have to know what a piece of music is about to actually enjoy it. And I would always rather people bring their own interpretations to it because, you know, this is when I think things get interesting. And, and after our screening at um, Horror on Sea, people were coming up to me with their own impressions and theories. And, and I just, you know, I love that. I think that that's really what sort of film and art should do. It should, you know, encourage people to actually bring their own imaginative interpretations to it. And I, I really hate movies that spoon feed their audience and sort of say, look, this is how you're supposed to feel at this point, And that's what this movie's about. It's a message movie. I would always much rather somebody come up with an interpretation. Even if I don't agree with that interpretation, I think for me, this is, this is really where, you know, film gets interesting. I think I think I mean when Daryl described it as lynching, I, and I watched it. I, I I absolutely agree as well. It's not often I, I, when people describe something as lynching that I agree, but I absolutely do agree with this one. And I think it goes back to my my thoughts on on Lynch as a filmmaker, in that people filmmakers, young filmmakers or new filmmakers or short filmmakers often use surrealism or strange sequences or Lynchian yeah. moments to kind of hide their script yeah. and, and, and use it as a safety net, say, oh, you're not supposed to understand it, but you don't understand it. Whereas whenever you watch a Lynch film, yes, it's strange, yes, it's unusual, but I have complete confidence that David Lynch knows what he's talking about. Yes. Lynch knows what he's saying. And I got the same vibe with this as well. When I'm watching it, now, okay, that's unusual, I don't understand what's happening, but I have confidence that you as the filmmaker, know what you're saying and know what you're doing, which is often the missing link in a lot of those uh, films. Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, I mean, I, I kind of agree that often if you're using surrealism in a contrived way, it often feels a bit like, well, you just didn't end up shooting all the movie you wanted to shoot, so now you're pretending that this is a dream sequence. Um, and I, I, I kind of agree with that. But yeah, there, there is a rationale to the symbols that are in Exit. And yeah, there is a story there. You know, it's, I mean, in many respects, Exit is, is a straightforward haunted house story, you know, and um, a bunch of people find themselves in a house and some people are, are permanent fixtures there and, and some aren't. And ultimately, as with all of sort of those great haunted house movies, is it is it the space or is it, you know, the kind of sins or aspects that people bring with them? And invariably, it's a combination of the two. But yeah, th there is a design here. And there always was. And I never wanted just to tell a, a straightforward story because I think particularly when you're a low-budget filmmaker, there is the danger that this starts to feel a bit soap opery if you are just kind of being a bit too linear with it. And also life is complicated, you know, which is a horrible cliche, I know. And um, um, I mean, I actually wrote this down. This is part of my homework. But I actually wrote down a line from um, Carnival of Souls, which I think really, for me, sort of sums up um, my approach to filmmaking and, and in many respects what Exit's about. And um, the line is, it's funny the world is so different in the daylight. In the dark, your fantasies get out of hand. And I think for me, that, that sort of sums up my approach to writing and filmmaking, the kind of idea that in those dark corners in, in everyone's kind of psyche, there are these sort of, you know, lusts, desires and thoughts. And, um, you know, if you were able to explore these, you know, that would be one hell of a movie. So talking about other influences, I'm, I'm assuming, again, maybe I shouldn't assume, but I'm assuming Jean-Paul Sartre's No Exit was an influence on this. Uh, yes. Exit and then the Hell is Other People kind of vibe yeah. going on there. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't really want to sort of overstate, yeah. you know, what things are about, and and also I don't really want to, you know, kind of guide people's interpretations too much. But I, you know, for me, that is one of those those great lines of, um, of the twentieth century: "Hell is other people," mm. and that kind of idea of almost sort of a, a waiting room or a kind of liminal space before people, you know, move on to somewhere else. Um, the house for me in exit. I always wanted to feel that it was this kind of sort of um, this space that was, you know, sort of between two worlds, as it were. And, you know, which is a kind of sort of similar idea to no exit. And I think that, you know, it, in many respects, it is quite a bleak existential movie, Exit. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think, uh, you know, without wishing to get bogged down with, sort of, you know, a lengthy discussion about French existentialism, um, you know, I, I do, I, you know, there are some interesting kind of sort of stories and things to be told about the movement from this world into the next. In, in respect of, of this particular area and aspect of the film, Michael, is it a time travel movie? Ah, now, I'm going to, uh, yeah, do I want to give too much away? No, uh, I, I, that's why I phrased the question like that. I think we, we, we should sort of skirt around that a little bit but yeah is it a time travel movie without without giving away masses of plot yes to a degree because i think that for me every one of the characters is kind of trapped within a time and a space so there is a look to tony denham's character russell bone which suggests the time period in which he's stuck in there is a look to my character which suggests where i'm stuck and there's also a look to the uh, Mo the drug dealer character, which suggests the time in which he's stuck. And also, I mean, in a couple of reviews, people have sort of made reference to the fact that the sort of flash forwards act as spoilers. Well, only if you see them as flash forwards. For me, there was always a circular aspect to this narrative and the idea that these characters are going through it again and again and again. And as I say, whilst, whilst I'm desperately trying to avoid spoilers, there are some clues when people first arrive at the house that this has actually all happened before. And um, as you say, I mean, again, one of the things I really love about Meshes of the Afternoon is, is just the fact that sort of time and, and the sort of discontinuity between time and space in that sort of film. And I think that really that's what we were aiming for. It's not set in any particular period. Um, nobody's got mobile phones, but that's only because I hate mobile phones in movies. Um, I mean, you know, Russell Bone's got one, but it's, you know, the size of a small suitcase. And um, and really, I think, yeah, there there are some discon- discontinuities around sort of time within the film, and, and that was always intentional. Yeah. One sign of that, we talked about the ratio that you'd, you'd opted for, and um, uh, when, when Tony's showing them all the mod cons in, in the flat, um, there's like this big old-fashioned TV... <laughs> Um, but he's talking about it as though it's a, a state-of-the-art TV in the 21st century. Yeah. And it's, it's little moments like that that sort of mix things up and mean that audiences can't quite get a handle on what you're doing and where this is set. Yeah, I mean, to be, I mean, to be honest, I, yeah, I'm a fan of old technology anyway. Um, but to be honest with you, yeah, I mean, I, it's one of those kind of things that, I mean, it's often a kind of easy way to get humour, but the idea that in the past, the new technology, you look at it today and you kind of go, really? Mm. Um, but um, yeah, I, I really kind of like playing around with the idea of, of time and, 
And um, I mean, you, yeah, we mentioned Lynch, but one of the things I always love about David Lynch films is no matter when they're made or when they're set, it's still 1956. You know, every David Lynch movie is 1956. And I think that, you know, for me, I don't really ever see my movies getting beyond about 1993. I think that's where our sort of time frame stops. Wow. Now, in terms of influences, I know you, you've talked to, on, on, the, on the Blu-ray that you've issued of Exit, we've been talking about directors who've influenced you, but uh, you've actually mentioned uh, some old uh, cameramen yes. working in, in, in the dim and distant past of the British film industry. So uh, um, talk a little bit about those sort of old-time influences and how they've influenced the look of the film. Yeah, I mean, as I say, sort of growing up, there were certain films that always seemed to be on British TV a hell of a lot. And one of them, um, you know, it's one of my all-time favourite films, which I, you know, I still think is a really scary movie. It's, um, it's uh, The Ipcris File, uh, Michael Caine as, as Harry Palmer. And there is a seediness to that film and there is an oddness to that film. And I'm not even entirely sure I entirely understand the plot of that film. But one of the things I love about that movie is the way it's filmed. And it was filmed by a cinematographer called Otto Hitler, who has these incredible angles and a way of framing things that is just completely sort of like off kilter that you'll never see anywhere else. Um, and, you know, there are scenes filmed through lampshades. There's, there's a great fight sequence that takes place on the steps of the uh, Albert Hall. And rather than being close to the action where you would be if this was, you know, a James Bond film or, you know, any other kind of movie, he frames it through a phone box. And to me, I just sort of think that, that that's genius. That just kind of that sense of almost making the audience a voyeur in that we're close enough, but not quite close enough. And really, I just, I just love the way that he films stuff. Um, also, another big influence on me is, is Michael Powell and his films, because you know, forever in the UK, sort of watching sort of BBC films in the afternoon, it was always something by Michael Powell. And one that always stuck with me is, is one called Black Narcissus, which was filmed by Jack Cardiff, a very sort of famous um, British cinematographer who did, did a lot of Michael Powell's films, but also a, a film called The Innocents, which again is, is another one that stays in my sort of, you know, perpetual pile of films to watch. And you know, just the way, the eye that these guys had, just I think they just bring something to a narrative that is a bit beyond just framing up a shot. You know, these guys really, I think, did something. And it's difficult to put your finger on what it is in the case of Jack Cardiff, but there is an eeriness about much of Michael Powell's films, even something like Black Narcissus, which is, you know, a very vibrant looking film. There's a strangeness about it. And it, it's kind of difficult to say what it is that uh, Jack Cardiff brings to it. But there is an oddness through the, f the framing of some shots and the use of, sort of you know, depth of field and stuff like that. But yeah, no, I'm a, a bit of a geek when it comes to cinematographers, I must admit. It does feel, I mean, it does feel with this film, and often that criticism I have a lot of filmmakers is that the films are only informed by other films. Uh, you know, you can see everything that's gone into the film's ingredient. Whereas, yeah. like, filmmakers of 30 years ago were saying, well, yeah, I was very influenced by this ballet I saw. I was very yeah. influenced by this play I read. You know, whereas we don't, a lot of filmmakers now tend to be very mono-focused on their influences. Whereas Exit just does feel like you've got other influences coming in there outside of just my favorite film director is this guy or that guy. You've got the surrealist thing. You've got the theatrical thing coming in as well. Um, 
was that a conscious decision or is that just the makeup of Michael Fausti? I mean, I, I guess in many respects, you know, it's, it's the kind of sort of rubbish tip that is my head. But, um, you know, I, you know, in addition to sort of being, um, you know, a film fan, I'm also a music fan and I've, I've always read ever since I was a sort of kid and I'm a sort of fairly voracious reader. And I always sort of tried to sort of, you know, got a bit of a magpie approach to influences in the, you know, I, I, you know, I do collect sort of, you know, visual stimuli and, and if there's a song, when I, whenever I'm trying to write, I basically, you know, I, I always write to music. I don't ever just sort of sit down and, and start trying to come up with an idea. I always listen to music when I'm trying to write. And I think those, those influences kind of, you know, I'm hoping sort of make their way into the films. But, yeah, no, I do agree with you, Adam. I do hate this, you know, spot the reference game that some sort of filmmakers like to play. And, ooh, did you see that? That lines out somebody else's film. And you just sort of think, well, why can't you just make your own film rather than trying to reimagine or you know pastiche other people's i mean it, when you're kind of tied by genre i think this is often an issue that you're you're stuck with those tropes and no matter how much you try to kind of you know bring a, a fresh spin on the slasher genre it's it's you know it's, it's it's a tricky one but i think when people consciously are sort of like well you know i wanted this film to look like i don't know you know a, a certain director's work you you're often onto a loser because ultimately you know, if you're sitting there watching a film and it makes you think that you'd rather go and watch the original, then uh, that's probably the worst thing you can say to a filmmaker. Mm, mm. I think all I'd like to add is is to just ask Mike what he's got planned for the future, because you do say some interesting things again on the on the exit Blu-ray about what might be coming next. <laughs> Now, I always, uh, fortunately, my producer, Lou Nosbord, is, is, is not in the house, so we can actually have a bit of a private conversation, gents, because um, I'm always getting told off for kind of giving away any sort of future projects which we might mm. or might not be working on. I'm working on a couple of things at the moment. Um, I suppose one could be described as a kind of sort of psychological film noir, and another project, Daryl, I know he'll be a fan of this, is a bit more punk. And I it think was, it was the word punk. That, it was the word punk, I think, which which yeah, piqued yeah. your interest. Um, I mean, to be honest with you, it's going to come down to you know, probably whoever is listening to this podcast is sick of hearing about this, but it's going to come down to whatever happens with kind of sort of COVID nineteen and when we can actually start filming again, because you know at the moment we are kind of hamstrung by what we can do and what we can film. So I think of the two projects I'm kind of working on at the moment, one is a bit more ambitious than the other. And I think that uh, time will tell which one our audience gets to see first. But what I would say is if, if you like Exit, um, you, know, we, you know, that is my style of filmmaking. That is sort of pretty much the direction both films will, will kind of have. And, um, and as I say, if, yeah, many of those kind of sort of elements of, of Exit will you know, doubtless be finding their way into the next thing we produce because... Uh, a bit like Johnny Cash famously was once asked, where did his sound come from? And he just sort of said, well, it's the only way I know how to play. And I think it's a bit of a case with me, really. It's the only way I know how to make films. So if you like Exit, you'll be seeing much more of that kind of stuff in our forthcoming releases. That's great. I mean, no, nobody can describe Exit as uh, as being a socially distanced film. So no. uh, <laughs> obviously, if, if, you, if we're going to get more of that, you know, you're going to have to wait uh, and, until you can sort of do what you want to do. Yes, and uh, and as I say, you know, I you know I'm an, a director who likes working with actors. You know, I'm not one of these who just you know wants them to stand there and say their lines and then kind of leave. You know, it's for me, I do enjoy the kind of rehearsing and and the kind of working with actors and and just the collaboration process. So 
all the time I can't do that. You know, it's it, you know I'm not going to rush into anything. You know, and try and do it with sort of actors standing six feet apart and shouting their lines at each other. Um, you know, we are going to wait until we're in a position to kind of, as you say, make some uh, socially undistanced films. Very good. Well, you can check out Exit at Paris Cinema Film Festival online from the 19th to the 25th of November. And I'm assuming you can buy it direct from Fausty Films' website and a very special collector's edition Blu-ray um, as well. Uh, you certainly can, Adam, and I'm glad you brought that up. Yes. I'm assuming it's competitively priced. Oh, it's very competitively priced. And uh, yes, why not head over to FaustyFilms.com and pick up your very own copy of Exit. Um, and uh, we'll throw in a poster and some stickers as well. There you go. Cool. Well, both me and Daryl have already purchased that and we can heartily recommend it. <laughs> Cheers, fellas. <laughs> cool. Thank you very much, Michael. Thank you very much, Daryl. Um, we'll be back again fairly soon with another wonderful Cinelet podcast. Thanks again to Quad and the BFI for supporting this podcast and we will see you all next time. Take care.